2: Roger, uh, would you like uh, vectors to Fort Smith, ma'am? Roger, I'm declaring an emergency, ma'am, and just let me know if there's any way you can assist you and just plan to land at Fort Smith for now. Operative, thanks.
3: Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden, and today's guest is former AOPA employee Kelly Keller, Kelly earned her private pilot's license when she was just 20 years old. She comes from a family of aviation, and she calls herself a spoiled brat of aviation, which seems a little harsh until you realize she grew up flying with her father in a Staggerwing for most of her youth. She learned to fly in a Citabria, soloed at age 19, got her private license at 20, and she's been flying ever since. She's worked for Textron, AOPA, and now she's currently The regional sales manager for the Southeast for Garmin. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us on the There I Was podcast.
0: Thanks, thanks for having me.
3: So Kelly, you have quite a hair-raising story about flying your family back in a 172 from Gaston's White River Resort. On the way back to Hicks Airfield, you were flying your Flying Club's 172 and experienced an engine failure.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely kind of the, the perfect storm of, of situations because <laughs> it was supposed to be uh, my husband and my uh, baby moon, so to speak. Uh, I was seven months pregnant with our first child and uh, had him in the airplane, my Labrador retriever in the back seat, uh, and obviously my, my little co-pilot on board with me. Yeah, we were going to Gaston's uh, White River Resort for kind of one last hurrah, and it was a great trip. Really recommend going. But on the way back, I was over really the Ozark Ozark Mountains without many airports nearby and smoke in the cockpit. That was kind of my first indication that there was something wrong, obviously, and I could tell it was kind of an oily smell, but at that point it's just troubleshooting and making sure that I couldn't see that there was anything obvious, obviously on fire or, you know, anything like that. So
3: it's daytime. Is there is weather an issue at all here?
0: It was clear in a million, beautiful day, you know, daytime midday. It was about eleven to noon or time frame.
3: Okay. And about what time of year is this?
0: This was November. So this was November of last year.
3: Okay, great. And about what altitude were you cruising at?
0: So at that time I was about, I wanna say it was about thirty five hundred feet. I wasn't, you know, up super high, you know, kind of for two main reasons. I was on VFR flight following. I did not file an IFR flight plan because, you know, probably very few listeners would have this problem. But when you were seven months pregnant, you probably need to stop somewhere, you know, before you get home. <laughs> <on. laughs> so we were, we were kind of, uh, you know, kind of just on a, on a VFR, you know, flight plan, flight following and uh, having a good time and, and um, you know, just kind of enjoying enjoying a VFR flight home.
3: Got it. So you had about a three-hour flight or so home. Beautiful day. You just had a fabulous vacation with your husband. And you're just kind of sauntering back, really. You know you're going to stop somewhere. And you're up at 3,000 feet, which looks like maybe it's roughly 1,000 feet AGL or so based on the terrain up there in that part of the country. And just flying back, enjoying yourself until all of a sudden you kind of start to smell a little bit of something in did you say you saw some smoke?
0: Yeah. So, so smoke pretty much immediately filled the cockpit. And, you know, when you, when that happens, you always think through what that might look like and, and just, you know, in our training, figure out what, what your action plan is. But until that happens to you, it's really startling. Mm, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. really startling. So, you know, the first thing I did was just kind of start troubleshooting. Okay, is it electrical? Is, it, is there clearly a fire? No. So I opened up the windows just to try to get some air. Because obviously, I'm, I'm very cognizant of, of what I'm breathing in at that time, too. So open up, open up the windows, kill the cabin heat, which was uh, a kind of a crucial component when it came down to it. Because once I killed the cabin heat, the smoke stopped. So I was like, okay, you know, it's, it smelled oily. I could kind of tell it was something like that. And at that point, I looked over at my oil pressure gauge, and it was at zero. And at that point, you know, my, my husband's a mechanical engineer, and he's, he used to work on uh, drone engines, actually. So he's very aware of, of what that means as well. Luckily I was already talking to air traffic control just since I was on uh VFR flight following for that that type of a trip. So I immediately talk with them and get them to try to at least vector me to the closest airport.
2: You need to report I smoking in hot cockpit. Roger, uh would you like a vector support Smith, ma'am? Primitive. Roger, if you just wanna fly uh heading a one eight zero ma'am, and is there any other way I can assist you? we've got the window open it seems to be helping uh, we're just gonna kind of monitor the situation Roger I'm declaring an emergency ma'am and just let me know if there's any way you can assist you and just plan to land at Fort Smith for now thank you
0: and at that point you know even though the smoke was gone even though the engine still sounded good to me I didn't notice anything different in terms of the performance at that time um, but obviously oil pressure zero is something this isn't gonna last very long so we get on a, a, a southern heading and just start going and, and start saying, come on baby, just get us close or at least get us to a nice field. Cause that was the other issue is you get so used to filing direct or, or trying to go as direct as you can. And so I wasn't near any airports and I was over some some pretty sporty terrain over the Ozarks there. So there were no good landing options immediately. The only options were kind of these hilltop fields that were pretty short. And I knew if I had to shoot for one of those, it probably wouldn't have gone very well. You know, I think I would have been able to get down and at least into a safer situation than than going straight into the trees, but it would have been very tight. So my best course of action at that point was just to, you know, try to get to Sportsmith Smith and and see how long the engine was going to go. Because at that point, it hadn't, you know, I still had something. It It was still working for me. You know, it hung in there for for a pretty pretty long while. And and ATC was wonderful trying to, you know, check in with me, making sure, you know, seeing what the current situation was, giving me wind updates. And and at that point, too, the other really amazing thing that, that speaks volumes about our community was that, you know, pretty much every airplane that was nearby was listening, you know, getting off the radio. It was pretty much just me at that point on the radio. And there were some folks that were not too far away, that were kind of handing our direction and, and asking ATC to, to let them divert so that they could keep an eye on us, you know, no matter what happened. So at that point, you know, it was just all full steam ahead. Let's see how far we can go.
3: So it sounds like that you smelled the smoke, you saw the smoke, and your engine kept running for several minutes.
0: All in, from start to finish, it was about 13 minutes.
3: 13 minutes from the time you saw it until your engine finally quit.
0: Yep. And so, you know, and that, and that was kind of, it felt like an eternity. <laughs> you see, you're minutes. It felt like three days.
3: <laughs> it sounds like your focus was just to head direct to Fort Smith, get there the most direct route possible while you were sort of scanning out, realizing that this engine could quit on you at any time. And so you're scanning for places you might have to put it down. What'd you do with your engine there? Did you just leave it alone?
0: So I had my, and I usually fly with my hand on the throttle all the time anyway. Um, it's just kind of a habit, a habit of mine, but, or, or at least, you know, in close proximity. But at that point, it was just hand on the throttle full time and making sure that all of my, it just had everything set up to where if I had landed at any time, you know, everything was set up for that. So for probably about five minutes, everything was good. I had it at my normal, normal, you know, throttle setting or normal RPM setting. But as we started getting closer, it was clear that the engine was losing power. So just kept advancing throttle, advancing throttle, and probably about, you know, the the eight-minute marker into it, uh, I was, you know, full to the wall, throttle in, and, and we were starting to lose altitude at that point.
2: I'm showing you at seven miles from the runway threshold now. We're about 2,500. We're, uh, we're losing power. Roger. Just let me know if you need a, any advice on any roads up there, too, ma'am. I I do have a highway 540 at your 12 o'clock and about uh, two and a half miles, and highway 64, 12 o'clock, about uh, one and a half miles as well, ma'am. It looks like you're passing over the river right now. So we've got a large field here on our west by the river. I think we're going to see for that.
0: As we got closer and I started seeing the city and I saw the airport, it was very much in sight. I kind of identified two fields that were my last ditch effort my last options before it was the city and then the airport and at that point you know it's it's kind of your gut wanting it's the kind of a get there itis of you know it's so close and then fighting the okay but what's your safest option and at that point i i knew it in my gut that we weren't gonna we weren't gonna make it and so my husband always jokes that even in a life or death situation, I picked the opposite choices as him. <laughs> <laughs> one field on my right, one field kind of to my left, but most mostly straight ahead. But the, the field to my right, which was more visible for him, obviously, was a was kind of a right base in to that field, whereas the one on my left was a straight ahead. So he said, you know, OK, when it was clear that that engine was starting to seize, I pulled mixture and he says, OK, there's a field on your right. And I say, I'm going left. <laughs> At the altitude where I was at that point, which was probably, which was probably a thousand feet AGL, I uh, it seemed like it was a pretty smooth surface, and it looked like a good field to me, and it was a straight end, so I didn't have to worry about making that turn, because at that point it was just airspeed. All I all I could hear in my head was my dad saying, "airspeed, airspeed, airspeed." <laughs>
3: so- That's great.
0: You know, luckily, since it's uh, I think it's a 1959 172, it's got the manual flaps, so that was a huge blessing to have in that situation as well. Because I cut mixture, you know, pull fuel off, and at that point, it's just all about stick and rudder skills, which I try to pull out, and uh, and my manual flaps. Because as as we got closer, we saw that there was an irrigation line in the middle of this field, and so. You know, I had the full 40 degree flaps in and then, you know, I, I have to put them down a little bit to try to extend my glide to, to get down past that irrigation line. And uh, and as soon as we were clear of that, you know, full flaps again. And, and I just it, I always say it was the best landing of my entire life. <laughs>
3: was it really under pressure? <laughs> it you, was. you came through. Yeah.
0: You know, at that point, just truly, OK, you know, now or never, here's the time. And as we got closer, you know, I, I could see that the grass in this field was pretty high you know it was probably four four or five foot grasses probably four foot grasses that were in this field so obviously i'm in a nose wheel airplane i'm a little concerned about you know flipping it so i just you know full aileron back try to make it as soft as i possibly could and, and you know re- touched down on those mains and as soon as i had the mains down and, and got it stopped pretty quickly i knew i was good <laughs> it was a short roll too because i was like oh, we, i just remember we came to a stop I look over at my husband, Matt, and I just go, huh, so now what?
3: <laughs> <laughs> so the rollout was the field. Talk, talk to us again about the way the field looked from your perspective when you decided to land there and how it actually felt when you got down there. Sounds like that's a hard thing to assess, isn't it?
0: It, it really is because, you know, when you're at altitude, it's it's late November, or I should say mid, mid-November mid last year. And, and so from from the, from altitude, you know, all you kind of see is, it's a brown grass field, so it looked like it had been cut, you know, not too long ago. But the closer you get down, I can kind of see that it was a lot of the taller grasses that were that were kind of folded over on themselves, and so it was actually deeper than I had expected it to be. It wasn't a it wasn't a smooth ground at all. But you know, at that point, you're just fully committed, and and at that point, it's just all about you know making it a smooth landing and trying to make it as soft of a landing as possible as soon as I touched my mains down and I could hear the, the whacking of the grass, you know, against the airplane. And I, I mean, we came to a stop very quickly. It was not a long roll at all. So at that point, it's just kind of riding it out and, and being with the airplane. And I just remember having the yoke all the way back as far as my pregnant stomach could get me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, at that point it was just kind of over as soon as it started, it seemed.
3: And then take us through the end of it. So you're stopped. You made it. You survived your engine out experience. You looked over at your husband and said, uh, well, now what? So what did you do?
0: So at that point, you know, I still had my radios on. And at that, I remember, and it's kind of funny, since I have the audio, I can go back and listen to it. But as soon as I was on the ground, air traffic control couldn't hear me, but the aircraft in the area could. This was another one of those just uh, crazy coincidences, but there was there was a pilot in the area who there was one that was coming over to try to fly over the field to get our to get you know eyes on us to see what happened and see how we were doing, and then there was another pilot that was further out but could hear my communications and she was relaying back to the air traffic controller everything that I was telling her. So you know first thing was just telling them I'm okay, I'm down, we're safe, airplane secured.
2: This is 459 Charlie Sierra. Um, Razorback approach would like to know if there's any landmarks, if you could give some instruction on exactly where you're at. November 459 uh, Charlie Sierra, uh, I didn't hear her transmission. I can hear you. Can you tell me where she is? She said she is just north of a glider field on this sectional, um, and it field just north of the glider field. November niner Charlie Sierra, Roger. I appreciate it uh, very much.
3: There's another kind of interesting dynamic here. It sounds like the pilot who had the issue... The controller who is helping you and the sort of pilot relaying your status were all females, all women.
0: Yep, it was an all-female crew, and the pilot that came over to try to get eyes on us was was a male. So there <laughs> there was one in there, but yeah, it was that was the other kind of crazy uh, crazy thing about it is obviously with the numbers you don't expect that, but yeah, it was all females looking out for me.
3: So take us back to just walking through the issue and your decision. I would imagine that had to be a difficult decision that took some discipline that you really wanted to make Fort Smith, you were really hoping to make Fort Smith and the engine just doesn't quite last long enough. It leaves you a few miles short. That had to be a tough decision, some tough discipline not to try to keep trying to make Fort Smith.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things about the whole episode and and kind of just how your brain works, especially when you're just taught, you know, taught from the beginning of what you do in the event of an engine failure and, and simulate an engine out, and, um, and trying to get your mind into that, you know, what do you do? And, and truly, one of the best pieces of advice that I got, you know, both from my dad and from my instrument in, instructor was to try to snap your brain into the logic and, and not in the emotional. And truly, at, at no part in the whole episode was my emotions built into it, or oh, oh gosh, what's going to happen? it was always just me thinking, this is going to work out fine. We're going to be okay. Let's just get this under control. And, you know, kind of two things that helped me keep my brain in that space. uh, My dad always said, okay, if you feel like you're getting a little anxious or pent up, wiggle your toes, wiggle your toes on, on, you know, just in your shoes and and kind of bring your your focus back to your body. And then my instrument instructor, similar concept, but just bite your tongue, snap your brain back into your body and, and kind of Start thinking rationally, but really, truly, at, at no point was was I even thinking through the the outcome of it because in my head there was no alternative. <laughs> we were going to be fine, and even at one point we had a joke about this too. As my husband just says, "You know, I love. I want you to know that I love you." And I said, "Stop that. We're going to be fine." <laughs> 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 was, you know in my head there was there was no there was no different outcome on it. But yeah, I mean, uh, I kind of felt myself trying to pull. Okay, you know. I, I see the numbers of the runway that we're trying to get to. But, you know, in part of it, the, the airplane kinda of called it for me. I, I knew that I didn't have the power. I had it all in. It wasn't going anywhere. And the engine did um, it was kind of the early stages of the engine starting to seize. So at that point it was just, okay, let's let's not try to push our luck here. Let's just cut mixture. I have a field in, in sight really close. Let's just go for it. Because that's that's our safe option.
3: And you land there and you get the radio relay so did the police come out to get you? Did a farmer come out to get you? I mean, how'd you get from there to...
0: That was kind of the funny thing is, you know, you, you kind of have to come down from what just happened. So that was part of what mo- majority of what I was trying to do was relay where I was because, you know, I could hear ATC, but they couldn't hear me. So they're trying to get any sort of... And I was trying to tell them on a sectional because there's actually a glider port uh, symbol on the sectional, pretty much exactly over the field where we were. So I'm trying to relay that back to the, the pilot who's then transmitting that to air traffic control to try to give our position to uh, emergency services. So, and, and all I had to do was just look behind me and there was a Walmart probably, I don't know, <laughs> you know, a mile away <laughs> that we could see. Now we could say is, you know, oh yeah, the Walmart's right there. But it didn't take them very long because you know, at that point we were four miles from the Fort Smith Airport, so we were actually pretty close. But it took uh, EMS services to try to get there, probably about 10 minutes. And then, you know, there was kind of a dirt road coming through, coming down this field, and you know we see the cops, the fire trucks, the ambulances, everything, because I guess all they all they were relayed back was that an aircraft is going down four miles from the airport. So they sent out everybody. And they get there, and we're pretty far into this field, and there's a lot of burrs and, you know, tall grasses. So um, the cops arrive on scene first, and, you know, all they see is a very pregnant lady, a guy, and a dog. And so they start talking to my husband to say, okay, you know, that's the pilot. You know, what happened? And he's going, no, she's the pilot. And they kind of laugh, and they're <laughs> saying, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, if he is. He's <laughs> like, no, seriously, she was the pilot. You got to talk to her. And they were just dumbfounded, like <laughs> absolutely blown away that that was, that was the circumstance. And, uh, and and truly at that point, because I, I was pretty calm and, and feeling fine um, until about 10 minutes afterwards and that's when the adrenaline just hit me full on and I was just shaking like a leaf. And at that point I'm like, okay, I'm really pregnant, <laughs> I feel like somebody needs to take my blood pressure.
3: <laughs> hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. And so what ended up being the issue with the airplane?
0: So at the end of the day, um, well, that was kind of the, 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 thing too, about getting the airplane out. Um, cause obviously we're not near Fort Worth. We're not near home. Um, and so one of my first calls besides, you know, talking to the EMS, uh, crews and the police officers was, uh, the flying club <laughs> tell them what happened. Um, so I call up the secretary of, of our flying club and, um, and, you know, just scare the the tarnation out of them uh, to tell them what happened. But uh, but they're just such a world-class flying club organization. And, and these are just guys that truly care about each and every person in the flying club. And they, they felt terribly that this even happened. But we were able to, you know, under our insurance, get the airplane back to uh, Hicks on a, on a tractor trailer. And so when they started tearing down the engine, it was pretty clear as soon as they opened it up that, the, um, oil line to the oil pressure gauge, uh, sheared off at the fitting at the engine side. Um, and so that oil was just shooting out of that where that fitting would, would, would be, you know, affixed. And because it was squirting out of that area, it was landing pretty much straight on the, on the shroud for the cabin heat area. So, so my fur because it was colder that day and because I had the cabin heat on, I actually found out what was happening, you know, fairly quickly, Um uh, then I would have probably otherwise, because otherwise, you know, it'd just be start, you know, part of my standard scan to look over at the oil pressure. But, but it could have been, you know, a couple of minutes, which would have been crucial um, to get us to that point.
3: That also explains why your oil pressure was at zero, but your engine kept running for another 13 minutes or so.
0: Exactly. Yeah, because it was just a gradual loss of, of oil over the course of um, over the course of that time. Yeah,
3: it disconnected from your pressure gauge, so there was no reading to go there and then it just leaked out of that fitting, it sounds like. So yeah. and that's something deep inside the engine that you'd never see on a pre flight. So there's was no chance of you catching that.
0: Exactly. Yeah, because the the um Obviously, where you lift the cowl and you look inside for the inspection on pre-flight is on your left uh, of the 172. And there's no there's no opening on the right hand side where that oil pressure line is. Um, so, yeah, in, in, in the pre-flight um, and, you know, it was just it, it must have been such a minor crack or, or maybe even not, you know, just with that flexible line over the course of, of time and now. Um, you know, as a replacement, they have a flexible line that we now have in the new engine <laughs> in the airplane. So it doesn't happen again. But, you know, it's just one of those lessons learned. And, and um, kind of another funny part of this story is I'm a member of the 170 Club. And obviously, with the age of, of this particular 172, it's, it's really close um, to the 170s. And I was reading an article in the 170 publication about a month, I think it was a, truly a month uh, after our episode. And there was another gentleman with the exact same failure, exact same situation, um, pretty much identical scenarios, um, who ended up putting it on a road.
3: Wow. You had a lot of dynamics going on there. I mean, you're seven months pregnant. So there's the physical part that you talked about. And also, there's, there's just a little physical difference with your stomach with your position in the airplane, right? You were talking about like the yoke coming all the way back. So you're, you kind of got some dynamics here that you're working through. And then how about with your husband? What's it like having an emergency like that with your husband? How did you guys interact and work together?
0: Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I, one thing that I think is really um, special that our, our, relationship in particular is just, we try to work as a team um, regardless of what it is, um, whether he's kind of like in the lead role at, so to speak uh, of whatever it is, or I am, um, you know, just talking through the situation and thinking rationally on it. Um, and so, you know, he, he was really, where I was focused on looking for alternate landing points and kind of looking outside the airplane to see, okay, what do we do? You know, he was just watching like a hawk on those gauges to see, you know, if the temperatures were changing, um, and, and just kind of letting me know <laughs> what was happening, at least on the instrumentation. Cause that's, that's kind of what he could focus on. Um, whereas I had to look at, you know, where am I taking this thing? Um, so, so he was, he was, you know, such an amazing help, um, and just stayed calm, didn't, didn't panic, nothing like that. And, you know, even, even I kind of have to laugh about certain things afterwards because he's pretty tall, he's six, four. And so his big concern when we were landing was, okay, how do I, how do I, you know, brace myself in this airplane so that (laughs) we go over, over the nose, you know, I don't get knocked out. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, he was, he was focusing on, on engines and his head, which was pretty reasonable.
3: Okay. So we know what you were doing. We know what your husband was doing. How about the dog?
0: Oh, he was having a blast. You know, he, he, he's, he's not a huge fan of flying, but he's pretty patient. But, uh, but you know, in his, in his brain, we landed in a field and he could, you know, go try to, um, you know, get some birds out of the field. So he was, he was having a ball. <laughs>
3: So he he not disturbed by the uh, rough the the roughness of the surface on the landing at all. He just bounded right out and and everything's good.
0: He was having so much fun because he was just on a fishing trip himself and then landed in a field and got to hang out with police officers. So he was, he was having a great time.
3: I can just imagine uh, your dad. I know you shared with us he was a former Air Force pilot and then flew with the airline. So a lot of formal training there and a lot of GA experience flying his stagger wing and other airplanes. And it sounds like he passed a lot of that along to you that you were able to rely on when uh, the time required it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he, um, you know, and that's, that's kind of one part of just how fortunate I am in my flying experience is that he passed so much information on to me and, and just things to look for and, and, you know, flows to go through and, um, and obviously, as my primary flight instructor, um, and then also his airplane and his kid. You know, he was very invested in making sure that I did everything as safely as I possibly could. Um, and he—he he actually passed away in 2016 um, from a battle with leukemia, and then—and um, then pneumonia later on. But, um, but he—I have no doubt that he was my guardian angel and wingman on that thing. He was—he was right there with me.
3: Sounds like, and I uh, would imagine him to be so proud of the way you handled the whole situation all the way throughout and a situation that has a very good ending and some humorous points that you can look back and laugh at now just because of the way that you handled it your cool demeanor going through it your logical decision making so what an incredible story and a fantastic end thanks for sharing that with us
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a unique one, um, but it's definitely a, a fun uh, fun story to have in the baby book.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so you're back flying again with the uh, Nate Abel Flying Club, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. is the 172 back flying again?
0: It is. Yeah. It's, uh, it got, uh, basically a new to us engine. Um, I think with pretty much zero time on it. And so I've, I've flown it uh, a few times. I actually am a little rusty now. I need to go back out, but, um, but even my son has been on a couple of flying uh, adventures with us already to go out to fly for breakfast. And, um, so it's not where, you know, it, it was kind of an interesting after, um, after the fact, uh, and, and kind of, working through the issues of getting back in the air afterwards, because obviously, you know, <clears throat> being seven months pregnant when that happened, I very, you know, reasonably took a hiatus until <laughs> the baby I was born. And then after that, you know, it's, it's, it was, you know, having the uh, engine being put back on the airplane and, and getting the kinks worked out of that. It was kind of a, a, a unique um, issue afterwards because not only had I not been flying since that episode, Um, and then obviously a new mom and and working through kind of the emotions of my new role as a mother, you know, was, was getting back in the air and and kind of getting back on that horse and and saying, okay, you know, I'm, I'm good to do this still. It didn't freak me out to, to stop. And it, and it did affect me a little bit. Um, even as somebody who's been in the air since literally I was a week old, it took some willpower to get back in and, and do it again. But once I did, you know, once I got that first flight under my belt, um, and I had a good friend go with me, who's who's a wonderful pilot himself, just kind of be there as, as emotional support. And then obviously, as as backup, you know, should my emotions get the best of me. But it was fine. As soon as soon as I took off and, and as soon as I was back in the air again, it was kind of like, OK, yeah, I'm fine. You know, knock that off. I just needed to get back on the horse and, and get back to it.
3: As you look back on it, Kelly what are some of the lessons learned that the rest of us can take away if we're ever faced with that kind of a situation? What were the keys to it ending so successfully?
0: So, you know, obviously, you know, from a skills perspective, a lot of it is just kind of that one, don't think it won't happen to you. Um, You know, my dad had an engine out after 42 years of flying, um, his first engine out, and it was honestly eerily similar of a situation. He also had come from Gaston, so that's that's another story though. But, you know, just that idea of, you know, don't think it won't happen to you. Make sure that you constantly think through the, you know, okay, what is my out always have an out in place because even, you know, I I think one of the errors in my judgment before that episode was, was having that direct to mentality of instead of trying to plot out a route that's safe and giving yourself some options, um, you know, I was in the mode of, okay, let's just get there as, as quickly and efficiently as possible. And so going forward, you know, regardless of when I'm flying, but especially in single engine airplanes, you know, thinking through your, weathers, uh, your, your weather situation, making sure that you're not going to get in your situation, you know, if you have an engine issue, um, not being able to see, you know, whether that's in weather, um, at night, over terrain, you know, just give yourself options um, because, you know, it can happen anytime, anywhere, in any circumstance. So that, that was a huge takeaway for me. And, you know, just just sharpening those skills and, and, you know, just do some do some simulated engine outs, you know, go with an instructor, have that instructor or on your biannual review, you know, give you a curveball, you know, something out of the ordinary, because even just getting your brain into that mindset of, well, I didn't expect that. How am I going to handle that? And just kind of, you know, thinking through how you would react, um, because you you truly don't know how you're going to react until it happens to you.
3: I would say some aerodynamics and stick and rudder skills there as you pick your field, you're coming down towards it, and when you get pretty low, you see that irrigation ditch, realize you have to raise some of your flaps to get over that and then back into the flaps again. So changing those dynamics at pretty low altitude with no, with no engine to help you with airspeed. So definitely some skill involved there that you must have uh, achieved somewhere in practice, somewhere along, along the way.
0: Yeah, I mean I think, you know, sometimes and you know, I don't I don't ever want to sound preachy that, oh, I know exactly what to do, but you know, especially in that situation and just knowing, you know, having my dad in the back of my head saying airspeed, 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 it's not to go faster, you know, it's not to have more airspeed than you need, because otherwise I would have gotten to the end of that field and not had any options. It's truly finding your knowing your your aircraft's performance envelope and knowing what your speeds are. And have a little bit of that stole mentality, you know, know, know exactly how slow you can go and how much you can get that airplane slowed up so that you have time, you have, you know, altitude and, and you have options, um, you know. and Because if I carried more speed in that field, I would have, you know, hit that rough terrain going faster and I would have gotten to the end of that field without any sort of options for a go around, um, you know, if I hadn't been pretty, you know, I was probably at, you know, 65 knots coming in
3: you uh, had this episode when you were seven months pregnant so do you have any advice for women out there who are considering flying while they're pregnant or flying while they're pregnant what kind of what kind of things should they think about
0: it definitely is kind of a unique circumstance that there aren't a lot of resources on <laughs> I remember um, trying to look for um, you know different resources to read up on of, of you know what you should be careful of and, and you know how late you can fly when you're pregnant and I've heard of stories of of women that flew up until they delivered. So, um, so in terms of that aspect, um, you know, that, that wasn't really concerned for me, but really it's just listening to your body. It's kind of like any, any other, you know, illness or condition, not that I want to call pregnancy an illness, but, uh, but any other condition that, that any pilot can find themselves in, you know, are you feeling up to it? Are you in a good space to where you can adequately take control of the airplane and, I took my instrument check ride when I was six months pregnant, and that was no fun with the nausea, <laughs> but I did it, kind of mind over matter, but, you know, obviously, you know, sometimes you want to take something to try to, to get rid of the nausea or get rid of some of the symptoms, but I highly recommend those little air sickness bands, the little wrist bands, uh, look into those if, if you're needing those. Um, but you know, just just listen to your body, listen to how you're feeling that day, and obviously take your doctor's advice. But in terms of flying when pregnant, you know, it, it was I did it kind of throughout the entire stage of the pregnancy. Some days were better than others, but uh, I think I've got a little daredevil on my hands <laughs> from doing it. He seems ready to go, so <laughs> um, so I recommend it. You know, I, I don't. I, I would say don't be afraid to do it. Even though it might present some different challenges, it just makes you stronger. But do be careful of avgas. You know, anytime you're fueling the airplane, I would try to um, have other people around or other, you know, people just at the airport try to help me. Um, you know, getting up on the ladder, I really didn't want to do, obviously. Um, but also just touching, touching the fuel, touching the oil. If you can get somebody to help you when it comes to those chemicals, um, definitely do that just because, you know, you don't know what the cause, you know, what the effects could be. But that was something that I was already always really cognizant of.
3: Well, fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us, Kelly. Is there anything else that we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's kind of two things. I mean, obviously with, with Garmin, um, you know, if, if anyone's in the South Central United States and, and looking for avionics solutions, um, I am the territory manager for that area um, and happy to help answer any questions uh, relating to Garmin or avionics solutions. But if you're listening, you know, and you're not a part of a flying club or, or don't really know how to do flying uh, affordably, whether you already are a pilot um, and not sure how to get back into it, or if you're looking to get into flying and just don't really know how, look for flying clubs. Look, look you know, use the AOK Flying Club resource um, and, and find flying clubs that are in your area that are affordable, um, to get you flying. Cause there's some really amazing opportunities that, um, that a lot of people don't know about, uh, in order to get in the air. Um, so use, use those resources and, uh, and, and, you know, put yourself out there, meet some people in your community. Cause there's a lot of people wanting to get anybody in the air, regardless of, of their life circumstance. And then the last thing I kind of want to plug is, you know, like I mentioned before, I, I lost my dad to leukemia AML, um, when he was just 65, and, uh, and so I really encourage everyone, um, you know, regardless of age or, or circumstance or, or ethnicity, looking to be the match. It's the, um, the bone marrow transplant program, um, because all you need to do is just do a cheek swab and, uh, and submit your genetic profile um, to the um, bone marrow transplant folks. And so it's pain free, it's risk free, um, they'll call you if you are a genetic match to somebody, but you have the opportunity to save someone's life. So. I um, definitely recommend people look at BeTheMatch.org.
3: Wow, a stressful encounter by Kelly and her husband made more interesting due to her pregnancy. I loved what she left us with, some pretty important lessons there. The first one from her dad that said, switch your brain to logic mode. Emotion is not going to help here. Just go into solving the problem, which she and her husband did so well. And then airspeed, airspeed, airspeed. And that doesn't mean airspeed like she pointed out. That doesn't mean fast. That just means airspeed. Pay attention to it, the exact airspeed you need for the condition. Too much airspeed in that field would have ended up with a different ending. She did a marvelous job managing her airspeed. And then her final recommendation is stole. Get some STOL training. Understand the STOL capabilities, even if you're not going to be a STOL pilot. Just having that ability to understand how to fly your airplane at slow speed, the minimum field you can get it into, was very helpful to her in that situation. So all in all, some great lessons learned, a great outcome. And we're thankful to Kelly and happy uh, for her and her new family. Kelly, thanks for sharing your story. And thanks for joining us on another edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.